Welcome to Into Theology. I'm joined by Ian Clary, and we're looking at Augustine's Confessions. We're in book four, uh, which is kind of this whole chapter on maybe a little bit like friendship, but also this idea that Augustine needs to be illuminated by God before he can really know the truth. He has to be kind of humble, as it were, so that he can receive the blessing that God gives him of understanding in his memory or mind, which he'll identify later in Confessions as like basically the same thing. Yeah. Maybe not even just basically, maybe even the exact same thing. I can't remember, but it's there. He very, very closely unites them anyways. And I know you wanted to open this up by reading uh, section four of book four, where he actually talks about friendship. Yeah, I can remember when I first read the Institutes, or sorry, the Institutes, <laughs> <laughs> Confessions. The Confessions um, of, of, of Christian Religion. That's right. <laughs> um, no, but I, I can remember, I remember this section the first time I read it, like being like, whoa, like blown away. And I remember his discussion of friendship here, how rhetorically masterful it is because he sets this beautiful idea up of what a friendship looks like. And then he completely under, undermines it as saying it's not actually a true friendship. But I remember just being like kind of taken aback by it. Um, and yeah, it's in this big context of now he's going to go to Carthage. He's explaining why he has to go to Carthage because he's mourning the loss of this friend who dies. Uh, he's a, he's a manichae at this point. And so he's going to wrestle through with a lot of like his kind of like uh, embarrassment over his manichaean thought. But I do, I just want to read this section from book four, number four, uh, this, 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 this one kind of like dense paragraph of what, what he's going to argue is true friendship. <clears throat> so he says, in those years when I first began teaching in the town where I was born, so that's Tagast, I, I'd made a friend who was all too dear to me because we were united by our common interests. He was the same age as I, and like me, was maturing into the bloom of early adulthood. He'd grown up with me as a boy. We'd gone to school together and played together, but he was not yet such a friend to me then as he became afterward. Although even then it was not that true friendship, which can only really exist when you cement it between those who hold fast to you by means of the love that is shed abroad in the hearts by the spirit, the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Yet he too was sweet, ripened by the warmth of our shared interests. I had even wrenched him away from the true faith to which he had no heartfelt or profound allegiance during his adolescence and toward the superstitious and deadly fictions that my mother so lamented. Now he too, with me, was wandering from the right path as far as intellect was concerned, and my soul was helpless without him. Yet see how you, God, were intent upon us as we turned our backs on you and fled, O God. Uh, you, both a God of vengeance and a wellspring of pity, together you convert us to you in wonderful ways. And see, you took this man, my friend, out of this life when my friendship, when my friendship with him, which had barely lasted a year, was delightful to me above all other delights in my life. And then the whole thing is going to be this like one extended discussion of like his friend dying, uh, his friend becoming a Christian at the end of his life, uh, taking baptism, uh, which Augustine thought was suspicious and wasn't real. And then he, then the friend was horrified at Augustine making fun of him for being baptized. And then, uh, and then it's his, his l l extended lament uh, over the death of his friend uh, only to discover what real friendship would look like and it's interesting one of the things that i caught in this in that that paragraph that he'll pick up from uh if you noticed he said i had wrenched him away from the true faith oh wait sorry um just before that uh let me just, so but he was not yet such a friend of me that when he came uh, then as he became afterward although uh, even then it was not that true friendship which can only exist when you cement it between those who hold fast to you by the means of the love that is shed abroad in our hearts by the holy spirit which has been given to us but yet he was too sweet 
ripened by the warmth of our shared interests. Very interesting that he uses the language of fruit to describe the friendship, right? The same language, right? The same idea or image of fruit that he's stealing, uh, you know, so there, and, and And you're kind of curious, like, would he have been with him during the theft and all that kind of stuff? If he was a a long friend, Augustine doesn't say, but it's just, an interesting but it's question. interesting that language of of that yeah. sort of forbidden fruit is there which he picks up again at number five but yet unless we directed our weeping for you to hear not a particle of hope would be left to us so where is it plucked from this sweet fruit from the bitterness of life this groaning and weeping and sighing and lamenting uh and he's got this contrast between sweetness he, and he actually quotes again. lamentations in his lament yeah does he yeah grief that uh well i don't know where it is in your book but it's at the end of section four grief dark in my heart yeah uh i I love this sentence too he says uh well there's three sentences i'll read actually ish everything on which i set my gaze was death my hometown became a torture to me my father's house strange world of unhappiness yeah all that i had shared with him was without um was without him transformed into a cruel torment so he's it's it reminds me of, of rolling stones uh paint it black actually oh yeah right yeah, exactly <laughs> um i know that that's more of a war themed song but it's, it's just interesting like this this kind of honest grief i do want to mention something though like th- this whole but it's, it's funny how he contrasts his grief like yeah. sorry to interrupt but yeah. like because remember we talked about in the last book in book three with the theater and he gets all into like right seeing all this stuff going on in the in the he theater and weeping with them and all that but he has no compassion for anybody else now he's got com- like the real grief but he actually admits in book four, the grief actually isn't about my friend. I wouldn't have actually put myself in his place and died in his place is what he says. So I had grief. Who was the grief for? Actually, I was grieving about myself. Well, this is maybe really funny. It might be helpful to like to note what I was telling you before we recorded. Like when I was reading this passage earlier, it made me feel really empty when I thought about, um, well, someone in particular, but just let's just generalize like people yeah. in general of friendships where if you're not a Christian, you don't have that bond of love that is this Holy Spirit, that substantial bond that genuinely unites you uh, so that you're one body of Christ. Like friendship is essentially then just conversing with different nodes on the way through life of people and benefiting, negating, moving through, agreeing for a while, disagreeing. You work at a company for 50 years, retire, never talk to anyone again. They give you a bonus, you're done. Yeah, they move awful. on past you. Like there's no permanence. There's no stability in that kind of friendship. And if you just really just start sitting back and thinking about what the average person can experience, at least in our mobile and unstable world, like where we're always moving and always changing new jobs, gig economy, like friendship is empty and vacuous. And the grief then really like of a loss of friend is kind of your own grief. Like he had that sweet fruit, that moment of sort of like almost transcendent friendship, almost because it's yeah. not quite... And yet it's gone. It's plucked away. The fruit is gone and he's just empty. And I have to think like our friendship. It's, it's funny. I don't even know if it's gone because he uses mm. the, he uses the contrast between sweetness and bitterness. It actually becomes a bitter taste. Oh, it's transformed. Mouth. Good. Yeah. yeah. I think he actually says transformed, doesn't he? Or something. He might. I don't remember, but that's a good point. Um, well, well, I guess the whole thing, like, yeah, well, the section I read kind of shows that anyways, his hometown becomes like everything yeah, he sees empty. Is, is black. Yeah. So you're right. It's a tr- well, it goes back to the to what evil is too. It's that corruption of the good, right? Yeah. So he he has a sense of the natural good. I also wanted to note like the whole baptism scene is really interesting. So his friend, um, who Augustine drew to Manichaeism, I think is the implication. Yeah, yeah he he pulled him from away, yeah. from uh, nauseant Christianity. 
is on the on his deathbed and so his catholic family gives him an emergency baptism while he's unconscious and augustine's like well i i assume that that would just be nonsense like whatever happens to your body like who cares like right. the, basically if you're a manichae you might think your body's basically evil as a duelist but he comes to realize when his friend wakes up his friend takes it very seriously and his friend's soul is is transformed and that kind of also ends, in a sense, their friendship, or at least their, their kinship. Because his friend now has that love should have brought in his heart by the Holy Spirit through his, through his baptism. Which also, by the way, I'm, I'm, I know this is like way reading into it. I'm, I'm very curious how much of Augustine's baptismal theology is influenced by like an event like this. Oh, it's huge, for sure. Because Even though this is still early in his still early. career. I don't think this is the Pelagian controversies happen at this point, but like... For sure. I mean, baptism affects something. That, that's why they're withholding it, right? Because, uh, which is interesting on the pedo-baptist discussion in terms of the early church, because here you have like, these are not people that have had infant baptism, which is kind of funny. Well, like, yeah, but I think Gregory Nazianz is the same thing. He's on, he's on a boat Cesar, ride yeah. and he's like, oh, I should get baptized. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a whole, there's an amazing sermon by Basil on the feasts and fasting uh, volume that's published mm. with St. Vladimir Seminary, uh, where he has this whole thing where he's He's basically pleading with his congregants, get baptized, you know, which yeah. is really funny. Well, he but must anyway. even have babies and baptize the infants. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's the only way to read that uh, sentence. But it, no, he definitely, Augustine definitely, they, they are in this culture where you get baptized, it actually affects something and you're expected then to live in light of that. And that's what this guy does. It's, but there's it's something that, like this, let me read this one sentence and continue. Yeah. He says, I yeah. assume that his soul would retain what it had received from me. Yeah. But then not what had happened to his body while he was unconscious, which by the way shows that he's not a pure uh, dualist of some sort. Because or at least he's... yeah, at that point, I mean, he's a manichae, so it's really weird how Sorry. he thinks of it. Later, right? Augustine, because this is his reflection, yeah. like because his... he's thinking the soul is what's pristine. So whatever happens to the material body, because he is a manichaean dualist, at that point, it's like whatever you do to the body, who cares? Your body's evil. So like it's the soul that matters. But actually, as it turns out, his Catholic theology of baptism teaches, oh, that what actually happened to his body does affect his soul. And even in this chapter, he's going to talk about if you love something in, in nature and something created, great. But, you know, do it for the love of God. Like mm -hmm. he, he actually has a, a, for for his time period, a really positive view of body and created order. And I think here you see it because the physical elements of the water bathing this unconscious man um yeah he already knew the gospel it seems like before him but it but whatever that does actually affects a regeneration of the soul yeah um now you might want to parse out the experience like you might say well theologically i have to kind of disagree with that because the baptism is a sign and then in, you know I, I don't that's not what i don't care right but my point is it does he, something <laughs> he, he believes this and, and in his mind this is anti-dualistic and it's anti-manichaean yeah. so the there's something to it right you got to think about it at the very least and you got to see what he's doing because he is he's there's there's a part of this book the whole book where he's defending himself against the charges by the donatists that he's just a pseudo-manichaean still even though he's a catholic bishop but it's funny because like he starts with like you know, he's going, he goes he's back into Gast in his home. He meets this friend. He starts teaching rhetoric. This is going to explain why he'll go to cart back to Carthage, right. To, to teach rhetoric. Cause he can't be, you know, his home, as you said, is this, this horrible place. Um, he's also meeting his mistress there. Um, and uh, that's going to set us up for that whole discussion that's to come. Um, but then you get like the questions too, of like his ambitions to be a rhetoric professor. And then you get like this whole kind of like, um, when he gets to that conversation with the doctor, 
mm. when because he's all into astrology and he notes his ironies here because he won't practice like this kind of weird witchcraft where these animals have to be sacrificed he's like no i can't do that that's too demonic but then he's <laughs> like i'll go with the astrology because astrology doesn't make me do anything bad like that and then he meets this doctor who's like no 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 he's gotta get put those books away and uh, it's interesting that he what he says of this guy if i could find the quote but he basically says that this doctor really was not very eloquent in speaking. Um, but nevertheless, uh, he said something that was true. And Augustine wasn't willing to accept the truthfulness at that point. Uh, he still wants to go on with the astrologers. Uh, but what's, what's funny is that like he, this guy spoke something true, but it wasn't in, in rhetorical or beautiful language. And you're is starting the to- the pro-counselor you're talking about, right? Yeah, I think he'd been a pro-counsel as well. Yeah, okay, uh, he's yes. the one who actually put the crown on Section Augustine's three. head. Yeah, is that's it? section three. Okay, uh, sorry, I couldn't find it. Um, and, By the way, uh, in this conversation, they get to this idea of a higher instinct in the soul. And Augustine makes this really fascinating point um, right above the last paragraph before section four begins. He says, this instruction, this higher aspect of the soul, if memory serves, either by him or through him, you gave me so through yeah. the conversation. And then he says, the doubt which you imprinted in my memory I was later to follow up wow. with a personal investigation. Now for Augustine, again, I need, I need to recollect exactly, but for him, memory and mind are, are virtually the same or overlapping. And so you see here that God has implanted something into his mind or memory. And it's, it's a kind of doubt <laughs> because he has this sort of census divinitas, this, this idea of like a higher instinct of the soul. Uh, that he has to pursue. I, anyways, I just one of those like yeah. small sentences you read. You're like, whoa! I, I only noticed it today. But it's like that all the time with this book. Honestly, it's like you just you read something and then you read it again. You're like, whoa! I didn't see that there like ten minutes ago when I read this. You know, it's like right. there's such depth to it. But I, I do find it funny, right? That like here's this guy who's able to communicate truth in a very plain way, right? So he says. Uh, uh, surely even through this old man, you did not fail me for, or refrain from curing my soul. For I got to know him rather well and found that the liveliness of his opinions, though not eloquently expressed, were pleasingly serious. And what he's doing, like what, he, what you're seeing here with like this kind of rhetoric that he's really interested in at this point is it's basically like sophistry, um, like the sophists of Athens during Socrates's day, where beautiful speech they're very persuasive and yet have nothing substantial to say and that's what augustine was pursuing right was like the ability to communicate beautifully and and then he sees you know what though like that it's like what paul says it's like i didn't come to you with like you know powerful of, rhetoric powerful rhetoric powers of speech or whatever uh i came to you in plainness and that's what augustine's saying here is that like actually the truth is just actually pretty plainly spoken and has its own impact. You don't need to like. Can you pause for like two, one sec just to, just to kind of repeat what you said from in a different way. It's like, yep. so rhetoric is the ability to communicate in order to win basically an argument. Yeah. Whether or not it's true or not. And so. It's politics words, today, right? <clears throat> yeah, it's politics today. The words you use are not reflective of anything stable and unchanging because yeah. they are as changeable as the mores of the, of the moment or whatever. And so. I think even Paul is because obviously Paul is a rhetorical genius. If you've ever read his letters or sure. his preaching as recorded by Luke, like he, he obviously is doing or what we would call rhetoric today, but rhetoric at this time was, was more or less the art of winning an argument, yeah. being beautiful, pleasing, all that kind of stuff. 
and it didn't always, you know, of course have to be truth. And so when he works in Milan um, as like a, a lawyer of sorts, he, he's, he's basically like realizes it's a bad job because he's getting people off for crimes because he can just convince people of, yeah. of whatever he wants. So what's important though, is like when he comes to know God, whatever he says needs to correspond to something unchanging and real. And for Augustine, those are like the ideas of truth and justice, which are in the mind of God, in the memory of God, which are implanted in our memory and mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. He says it like later on, I guess this is in number 10 of book four, uh, talking about that permanence thing that you're just saying, right? He says, uh, just to start at the beginning, oh my God, creator of all things, let my soul praise you for all those things, but let it not be stuck fast to them with glue. Uh, with the love that comes through the bodily senses for they go where they were always going into non-existence and they tear the soul apart with unhealthy desires for the soul wishes to exist yet loves to find peace in those things that it loves. But in those things, there is no place to rest because they have no permanence. They flee away and who can follow them with the physical senses. So good. You know, that's and it's like, that's so what, practical though, isn't it? Uh, and you know what it was reminding me of what, like about a year ago, uh, when you and I did the, the break in the institutes and we looked at Ecclesiastes, right. it's like that's above the sun. If you want to put it in like, you know, Greco-Roman philosophical terms, that's where the one is. It's unchanging or whatever. You got to look above the sun to the things that are actually permanent. Uh, then to look at the, the changeable world here and put all our hope because that's what he's decrying. Right. There's like sex is good. If it's done within the right context of seeing what's permanent and what's changing. Friendship is good. Right. Uh, even ambition is rhetorical teaching desires good insofar as they are rightly oriented to those permanent things that are unchanging. That is God. Uh, but if you don't have those in that right order, then everything becomes chaotic. And that's why he can't even deal with his friend's death. Right. He can't even mourn his friend rightly. Which, um, and you, and you kind of made a like, good point for, for Augustine, it's an ordered love towards yeah. people and God. For Marilyn Manson, it's it's a disordered love, right? Yeah. So it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. you can just see like these. Like, <laughs> Stop! I was expecting works. you to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I gotta con con connect with the kids. You know, that's um, it. I'm the, sure everybody's listening to Marilyn Manson these days, <laughs> not in the, 90s, like the 90s, right? Or whatever he was. <laughs> but but the interesting point is like the. I just think this is so practical because so Ecclesiastes is a great example. The, the end is so jarring because he's like, all that matters is God. And you're like, is this a different author? Yeah. But actually, I think that in Ecclesiastes, he's just seen how life is so vapid and changeable and movable and impermanent and unsatisfying. And like today, the way that we experience it, I think it's the multiplicity of like infinite choice. Yeah, you we have, were saying that before, right? Yeah. And so life just seems so impermanent. You can choose this, order this from Amazon 24 hours, go on Facebook, Instagram, watch the war in Ukraine, watch football. Like we just, yeah. like, whatever Awful. you want. And there's no limit to this open porousness of uh, choice and information. And we all feel basically overwhelmed all the time, always tired, never finding rest. Augustine's world is different, but it's that same idea. And so I think he genuinely like, because he talks about like how, things that grow really fast and change really fast die really fast too. So we could, we, that's obvious to us, like cats and dogs and so on. We, they grow fast, die fast, but like, it, it's, it's just, I, to me, his basic insight that we are restless until we find rest in God is so practical, so true, so common sense. Peter Kraft says that um, Thomas Aquinas is the master of common sense. Well, well maybe that's Augustine too. He says a different yeah. mode of communication. He's more of a poet or, yeah. or, or whatever.
Yeah, it's it, it's he's he's trying to get us past not just ourselves, but everything in this world, uh, in terms of just like what they are, you know, in the spatio-temporal sense, everything is really actually supposed to be pointing us upwards to God. And so when we actually really see and function like that's the case, and that's how you treat the things of this world that are in your experience, you're going to flourish. Your soul will be rightly ordered. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but uh, it, that's, where, that's where the better, that's the better way. Like even when he talks about beauty, right? Um, in number, I guess, 13, is it? Uh, he says, in, in those days, I knew none of this. Um, I used to love things of lower degree that were beautiful and to go down into the deep and say to my friends, surely you must only love things that are beautiful. So what is a beautiful thing and what is beauty? Uh, what is it that attracts us and inclines us towards the things we love? Unless they possess qualities of grace and form, they cannot possibly attract us to them. I used to observe and watch how one among all these things might possess a kind of completeness that made it beautiful for that reason. Well, another seemed graceful because it fitted so well with some other object, like a part of the human body to the whole or a shoe to a foot or something of that kind. This thought seethed, what an interesting word that he uses there, in my mind, in the depth of my heart. And I wrote books on the beautiful and the fitting, two books, I think, or three, you know, oh God, I, I, for I have forgotten. But he, it's, like, it's so funny, he writes a book, he doesn't remember, but he's like talking about like what beauty and fittingness is, right? Because fittingness fits with beauty, pardon the pun. Uh, and then he just realizes like throughout this whole thing, it's like, I, I, it's like, he's like almost like a, it's like Wordsworth or like one of the romantics where he's like, he's worship, he's worshiping beauty for the sake of beauty without really <laughs> seeing it as a pointer to that, which is actually true beauty, which is the triune God. Um, right. And I, and I think he clarifies how, like in the first sentence of section 12, he says, if physical objects give you pleasure, praise God for them and return love to their maker, lest in the yeah. things that please you, you displease him. Yeah. So I think it's Romans one that says that we people know God from the things that he has made. So from the created effects, we can know the cause or participate in the cause. And that's, I think, pretty important. But it's also like just it's the difference between walking outside and saying that's an interesting biological phenomenon of a tree versus <laughs> that tree is symmetrical, beautiful. It grows. It's part of an ecosystem. It gives me shade. It smells good. It grows appropriately. It's fitting. It's it's. It's ordered and that tells me that this is a benefit of god whom i love yeah. like it i know that sounds like it may be silly but like it's the difference between those two ways of seeing even a tree and the second way is a much better way to live it's an ordered way to live because everything then is a signpost and a reminder of to use calvin's language god's fatherly providence his goodness to us yeah. which i'm sure augustine would say something similar I don't, I don't think he uses the word fatherly providence but he has similar ideas it's it's funny you know because like i i so identify i always have with this with this particular book in confessions because of this whole discussion of friendships like one of the things that i struggle with immensely is is friendship um i idolize it i think and it's been one of those things that god has always kind of like been ripping from my hands uh, in a weird way like i actually can like this is kind of lame but like because i was like really close friends with your brother-in-law clint mm. uh when he was in toronto we were very close friends and i remember when him and your sister moved back to calgary finally i mean i was just like a complete i mean if you'd see me i was a complete and utter disaster when mm. I left. and then that was like kind of redone again when i moved to colorado i was very good friends with my best friend justin galati who's in toronto oh, yeah. pastoring yeah. and it was the same thing and it's like it's like 
you know, and what, what's he saying here is like, I think what was happening in those cases, I don't think in the time I would have admitted to it, but like, I was like idolizing those friendships and those friendships became the ends rather mm-hmm. than the means to the greater end of like what true friendship with God should look like. Mm-hmm. And that's what, I think that's what Augustine is struggling with himself. And he's taken in like Aristotle, you know, Nicomachean ethics has like not an instrumental view of friendship, but it has that kind of orientation to it. Cicero in his writings on friendship, kind of the same sort of thing that Augustine, like the early Augustine, his writings on friendship really reflect that classical view. And then it's like at confessions and then afterwards where he starts to redefine what the classical view of friendship looks like in relation to the gift of the spirit through Christ. And, um, and that, like, you can see, I think, why he's explaining it so brutally, like the loss of this friend is uh, to see, to show you that actually, if you put that kind of uh, value and meaning in the friendship for just the friendship's sake, it's going to have that effect in you. Because I, I always remember Clint saying, uh, we were, it was one of our last dinners together at the, uh, across from the Flatiron Building in downtown Toronto. And I remember him saying, just like reflecting on like them moving back and stuff. And he's saying, it's because all, all of these relationships, all your friendships, your marriage, your relationship with your parents, everything is all impermanent. Uh, They all come to an end and we have to feel this in order then to actually value what's true. And I didn't realize at the time, but he's basically, Clint was saying exactly what's being said. He's the cowboy Augustine. He's the cowboy Cowboy version. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but and and I and I and I I think that's why this is always and I, and I'm sure I'll continue to struggle with like the loss of friendships or friendships maybe that's that part fail. Of what it is to be human in this impermanence. It's not like necessarily yeah. bad that that exists. It's just, I mean, Augustine earlier says he was in love with love. Yeah, but in this chapter he says the love of God was shed abroad in a Christian's heart, and so I think it's that transition from the from just loving love itself, loving the physical object itself. Because he says later in this chapter that his mind was stuck in corporeal form. Like he needed to get beyond merely just the things that are physical, like the pleasures of sex or the pleasure of friendship or the pleasure of rhetoric, but to actually know the things that, that are above and beyond, like the kind of spiritual important connections that uh, come to you from the outside in. Yep. And so I think that's why like, the spirit comes from the outside to the heart. So that's Romans 5 that he quotes baptism is water from the body that transforms the soul with his unnamed friend and then for the much of the rest of the chapter he's talking about how he needs light from the outside to 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 illuminate his his mind or so i can't remember languages but to illuminate him so he even has this whole analogy that he was reading all these books and seeing things illuminated by the sun behind him but like he never looked so his face was never illuminated well he but the funny thing is is that like he could never really truly see because of his faulty view of who God actually was mm. at that time. He's a manichae, right? So he is, he is putting, putting God into a, <laughs> 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 he, But But he's, he's, he's got a physical, corporeal view of who God is, right? God's not yeah. this transcendent well, yeah, true. creator being, right? So even when he is trying to look to God, it's a God of his own under, uh, understanding that he's made up. He, I mean, he, he literally talks, says that. He says, I made basically God after my own conception. Yeah. My conception that, of you was a lie. And then he talks in, in number 16 of uh, how uh, he starts, to, he's reading Aristotle's work on the categories, right? <laughs> and really he says, book, to be sure. <laughs> but, but what does he do? He's using it to categorize God, right? Because God's categorizable uh, at this point in his mind, because God's not the transcendent 
immutable, simple being, you know, that's eternal and all that sort of stuff. He says, what good did it do me when I was scarcely 20 years old? Uh, some writings of Aristotle called 10 categories came into my hands. I read them unaided and understood them. Uh, when my professor of rhetoric at Carthage read them out loud, his cheeks puffed up with conceit or others who are considered learned. I would hang on the very name gaping in awe as if it's some great mighty wonder. Um, so I brought up the subject with those who said that they had scarcely understood these books, even when the most learned teachers not only explaining them, but also drawing diagrams in the dust, but they could not tell me anything more than I had worked at reading them for myself. So he's telling you how smart he is in reading them. And then he goes right into saying how he uses this book basically to categorize God. Um, and so all his great philosophical learning, he's going to decry the liberal arts and all this sort of stuff uh, because they don't actually teach him who God really and truly is which as you say, then he'd go right on to say, so my face by which I saw those things illuminated was not itself illuminated. I did not know that the soul needs to be enlightened by light from outside itself. Yeah. So they can participate in truth because it is not itself the nature of truth. Which, by the way, there's a, there's a wrong critique of Augustine that he's merely this, doing this inward turn. Um, there's kind of a big move, group of people, but right. yeah, there's an inward turn, but he still thinks you need this external yeah. light. I mean, uh, 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 Luther might say the external word, but it's a light that it's the same idea, right? It's, it's yeah. God's illumination for Luther was more tied to preaching and so on, but it is utterly fascinating. Um, I just, the one last, I know you gotta run. So the last one is like yeah. God's simplicity, which we often think is this complex, silly doctrine is like for Augustine it was, the, it was the most freeing thing in the world because it showed him that there's something that is stable and complete and formed and not, not categorized by quality or shape or height but beyond us. And for that reason, completely beautiful and perfect and, and something that to which we could order our life to attain. Like God's simplicity is like a, it's like good news for yeah. weary sinners. It's yeah. not like some arbitrary nerdy ivory tower thing. I mean, you can make it that way. Of course you can make anything that way. Justification sometimes becomes pretty boring because people like parse it out in like books and books and all these like scholastic details, but in and of itself, both of those things are, why you worship. Yeah. Here, let me quote this at the end here, the last paragraph of book four. Uh, it's a great, it's a great prayer. You know, he says, Oh Lord, our God, let us put our hope in the covering of your wings, protect us and carry us. You will bear us up when we are little and you will keep on bearing us right up into old age for when you are our firm foundation, then it is a foundation indeed. Well, when it is our own, it is no firm foundation at all. Our good dwells ever with you, and because we are diverted from it, we instead become perverted. Let us return, Lord, so as not to be overturned, for our unblemished good abides with you. For you yourself are that good, so we are not afraid that we have nowhere to return, just because we once broke away. Even while we're away, our house has not fallen into, get, into decay, for it is your eternity." If that, I mean, if that doesn't summarize everything we've just been saying about permanence and impermanent and trusting in the things of this world instead of looking to those permanent things, it's like if you look to those permanent things, you get the you get everything in this world. But if you look to these, you get neither. It's a cliche, but it's that's what he's saying here. You know. Mm. See you next time.